Welcome to the Land Jam Podcast, a semi-friendly discussion between two blokes on watches, cars, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Tommy and Sanjeev. Welcome to a Land Jam Short. Configure it like a Porsche. Ooh, what are we talking about this week, Sanj? <laughs> that new 911 I just got. You know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I doubt. I'm going to hit the doubt button on that. Oh, I, I'm shocked here, you know. First, you say you, you doubt my watch choices, and now you're saying you doubt my car purchases. <laughs> so I, I guess this week we're going to touch on the news from Porsche Design. They've got some new program. Yeah, so well, let's be let's clear the air. No, I'm I'm not getting any 911 or anything like that. I don't um, think you fooled anybody, but sure. No, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so what we're talking about here is Porsche design, um, and Porsche design is basically their you know the lifestyle fashion arm, yeah, their design house of of Porsche. Um, so. They walk. They work on you know clothing, attire, glasses, and what they've been working on for the longest of time are uh, watches. Yeah, their history with watches actually goes back to the seventies, right? Yeah, and it goes in the, pretty far back. Yeah, in the past it was like collaborations with other watchmakers. You know. Um, yeah, they had a history with uh, Orfina. They had a history with IWC. Eterna. Exactly. I think they're still with Eterna now, right? Or. Well, they sort of went more in-house. Um, they okay. probably contract the workout, but their design, let's just say, has been more of their philosophy versus piggybacking another watchmaker. Okay. So recently, um, they have released uh, a concept where you can customize your Porsche design watch. And basically, they are taking their Chrono 1 time series, which is a chronograph uh, watch and they have allowed the buyer to modify certain aspects of the watch you know anything from the the, the color or the, the coating of the uh, the watch to the kind of bezel the dial what color you want it to be the rotor the back of the road and uh, the color of the rotor um so they supposedly say they have a million and a half permutations wow okay which wow. is it's, it's really extensive yeah, um, but just uh, to ground ourselves, it to to the listeners out there, their Chrono One Time Series is a Vaju seventy seven fifty based watch. So it's a three register chronograph at six, nine, and twelve. It's a titanium case at forty two millimeters, and it's got like a bead bead blasted finish. And it's available in gray or black. And, and this is, I think, outside of their customization options. Um, so the movement is the tried and tested 7750, which is, in this case, has got 48-hour power, 48 power reserve and uh, 28,800 hertz frequency. So I think that's about 4 hertz, maybe less. Um, as I mentioned, the dial, the hands, the rotor, dial, the bezel, straps, they're all customizable now. And... It's to me. It's taking the idea of um, the 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 Porsche when you when you option up a Porsche, they they have so many a la carte options when when you you know order a vehicle. So let's just say a, a Boxster or something. It starts at sixty thousand dollars. You can option that Boxster to almost double its price, and wow. and it's 
it's insane. And so similar idea, the prices start around 6,000 bucks, but they can go all the way up to 12,000. Yeah, it's insane. I'm actually looking at the, the uh, custom built website. Um, it's only in German, which is interesting, interesting. To yeah. See. But um, yeah, it's insane. I mean, even the most minute detail, you can change the chronograph seconds hand between white and black and uh, the rotor design on the back, you can change. It's a, it's a display case back. So the actual, um, what, what you have are Porsche wheels. You can pick the exactly. Porsche wheels that can go on the back of the watch. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. The, the craziest bit are the, the, the colors on the rotor. Um, it's, it's like you can pick a different color and it, it adds like 1500 euro or something ridiculous. I'll, I'll one up you. So if you put the um, Porsche logo on the case back, if you want it just in black and white, it's no extra charge. But if you want it in color, right, with the with the yellow, black and red, uh, the gold, black and red. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. That's 200 I, extra euro. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> that's the only change. <laughs> Like the, uh, I, I just, I'm on the website now and I'm, I added the 911 uh, Carrera wheel rotor and that was 1300 euros. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's borderline, but what I do like actually are the array of options you can do for the dial. Yeah. I, I actually dig that. Um, yeah, the actual dial, the bezel decisions you can do, I think that's really cool. Uh, you can decide between a tachometer or a different type of uh, bezel insert. Right. Um, I, I, you know, it's a cool idea. Um, but, you know, I think it, it, some of the stuff is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it is. And I it's mean, just like, you know, configuring a Porsche vehicle. Like, it's, it's ridiculous how much you can... Um, customize it but at the same time the options do add up quite quickly and you know what if the, if you're the kind of person that's worried about you know one option or another this watch is not for you right i mean yeah. the one that i've just randomly put together is about 7400 euro um you know it, it's it's a bit crazy i think the base is five year five thousand euro to begin with so yeah this yeah is, exactly it's, it's a bit much um but, so what do you yeah. think about the, the actual design of the watch, it, 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 irrespective of the optioning that you're doing right now? Like, so I think we covered this, the base watch before, right? We, we covered this base yes. design before. Um, I think it comes uh, on a metal band. It comes with a hollowed out end link, if I remember right, if that's the same design. I know, I know we've, we've talked about it. So, um, you know, I, I like the old Porsche design watches. I, I like that old, the Porsche Orfina line. Um, so, you know, it's okay. I, I think it's a modern take. It's an original design. It doesn't look like a Speedmaster. It doesn't look like a Rolex Daytona. It doesn't look like... Interesting a... you said it doesn't look like a Speedmaster. Now, I'm going to... Um, you think so? In some elements. So if you see the um, the minute, five-minute indices and the and the minute track indices that go along with it, yeah. that looks a little Speedmaster-ish. Yeah, but you know the subdials are at no, twelve, six, and nine, and yeah. the nine o'clock one, at least in, in the version that I'm looking at, is kind of actually like subdued. Yes. So it's not as big as the twelve and six. So right. uh, visually, it looks like a bicompact when really it's a tricompact. So um, 
you know, that, that kind of throws it off. But yeah, it I mean, does, I, does. I, I was just talking about the outer track, the outer dial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the 12 o'clock uh, sub dial is very Speedmastery. I mean, that, yeah, that looks straight out of Speedmaster. So yeah, but you know, I give them a little bit of credit. They, they did iterate a bit. No, no, so I, it's I its actually, own thing. You know? Yeah, as a modern Porsche design watch, this is probably my pick. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, if you're gonna go Porsche design, I think you should go vintage. You know, I think the '70s PVD ones or the, the, the Porsche Rafina military. I think that that those watches were awesome. So that's you'll really pick cool. anything vintage over something modern. That's not true. I, I I like modern things. What is that supposed to mean? Name me a modern watch that you like. That's not a reissue. No. Damn it. Uh. All right, I'll get back to you. <laughs> it's tough. Case closed. It's tough. Case closed. All right. Yeah, it, it, but if you think about it, most of the watches we do cover are either vintage or vintage-inspired or reissues of vintage watches. We don't actually yeah. really cover a lot of original watch design, if you think about it. If you go back and check our notes. True, right? true. I mean... There aren't that many original designs to really pick from. We, I mean, amongst what we cover, what we focus on. True. I mean, I think we're still in agreement, I guess, our, our current favorite watch um, that we really want to get is the Christopher Ward C65 PMT. Yes, yes. And, I, and I completely agree. But, you know, if, if, if you want to be a stickler here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a bit of a stickler with you, that watch is a new and original design. True. But it's also vintage inspired. It's supposed to look like true. a 60s GMT fight, you know, fight timing watch. So... It's not like you're looking at a watch that's pushing design in 2020. You're looking at a watch in 2020 that's harkening back to the 60s. So, yes, but also no, right? So, like, I think the the only one, the recent one that I can think of is that Tutima, that uh, orange Ooh. or yellow watch. Yeah. You know what I'm talking but about? But that's still based on the uh, on the vintage design. No, I'm talking about the dive watch. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Do you remember okay. that? Yeah, like that yeah. was like something way out of left field. Like that was original and new. Okay, yeah. so credit to them. But um, I don't think a lot of guys are doing that. Yeah. So, but, okay. So well, to summarize the Porsche design, so in my opinion, this is a, a, a nice watch if you are a, either a Porsche uh, fan or a collector or an owner that wants to have a watch to complement the car that they have. Um, apart from that, it's hard to justify. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is hard to justify. <laughs> yeah. I mean, chances are, if you're driving a Porsche, you know, probably also wearing a Rolex or, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of Porsche, um, fans, reasonable enthusiasts, hardcore enthusiasts. So I'm pretty sure they would want to have something like this. They'll, they'll probably enjoy it. Yes. And, yeah, it's got a following for sure. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. yeah, so yeah, the price can be going can go absurd. The other thing that honestly, it's not a big thing, but you kind of wish where the competition is better at, you kind of wish it was at the competition is the water resistance. It's only going to 50 meters or 5 bar. Wow, that is not a lot. The next watch we're going to cover is also 50 meters. So. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you and I, you know, what we see, our watches only capture, capture a few raindrops, maybe a pool or a beach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I think the rule is any chronograph that has any water resistance, like my, my, my Zen has, I think, 200 meter water resistance, but even at five feet of water, if you engage the chronograph underwater, you're killing that watch. You're going to destroy that thing. Exactly. So it's actually, if you think about it, zero meters water resistance, because what if you just touch it when you're swimming or doing whatever? So yeah, it's not something I would, I would advertise at all, to be honest. Uh, yeah. But all right. All right, Sanch. All right. Porsche, Porsche design. All right. Is it my turn? It is your turn. So what are we going to cover next? So uh, this is for the audience, the difference between Sanj and me. So Sanj has had a very pampered, um, very uh, high-end life. He's gone to private school his whole life. He's worn a tie to work every day and a tie when he was a kid. And I'm, I'm more blue-collar, blue jeans. You know, I've got Tommy, more overalls. Um, <laughs> let, let's take it a step back. You know, did so you or did you not go? Watch. <laughs> did you or did you not go to private college? I I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, so. Anyway, today's watch to... is the Timex. <laughs> <laughs> today's watch is the Timex Mark One Mechanical. Uh, all of 185 bucks. It has 50 meters water resistance, similar to the Porsche, uh, but you you can keep about five or six grand in your pocket. Um, and this is actually a reissue from Timex. So this is part of the Timex archive series, um, you know, where they've steadily, you know, brought back designs from their history. I think the Timex Q kind of fits in that same ethos of bringing back old designs. Uh, but this is based on the Timex Camper mechanical watch uh, from the 1980s. Um, so it's a very simple field watch. It's uh, got a mechanical hand wand movement. So, uh, you know, you have to actually wind it by hand. Uh, green dial, green canvas strap. So it's got kind of a military aesthetic, but it's also a very, you know, L.L. Beanie kind of watch. Uh, you know, you can go hiking with it. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, at that price point, you're really engaging people who, um, this may be their first mechanical watch. You know, this may be the first time they ever touch anything mechanical. Uh, this is probably the jump off between course to mechanical for them. If you look at the Timex website, and Warren and Juan has a great write-up on this, and, they, and they've noticed it too. There's actually instructions on how to use a mechanical watch. Like you wind it, you wind it at the same time every day, and uh, you know it'll it'll go on forever. Um, and that's pretty much it. There's not there's not not much to talk about it. I, it's a very simple field watch. Um, what are your thoughts, Sanj? Oh, I think it's an excellent execution by Timex um, for that price. It's it's really good. You know, hand wound, fifty meters. If this is, in a way, this is a, a very good homage to, like, say, Timex's back in the day, perhaps, because they were probably the same sort of uh, spec, you know? Yeah, and Timex actually has a bunch of these camper-style military field watches and quartz in PVD and, you know, resin, and they've got different executions of different colors. Uh, some are more, you know, kind of uh, tactical, you know, all black or whatever. So... I would expect that they're going to iterate on this and probably bring a mechanical version of those other colors as well, depending on how successful this is. Um, but, you know, this is the ideal, you know, watching grandpa's drawer kind of thing. You know, you just kind of discover it. It's cheap. It's, you can beat it up and it's a good looking watch and it's functional. And, there, you know, there's not a whole lot to talk about. Um, good for them. I, I think it's great. I think it expands the hobby. It, it brings a lot more people in. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all good. That's all good news, you know. And it's a small watch too, like you know, thirty-six millimeters. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's like the perfect size. It's a good price, and it gets the job done. So you know, there's there's not a whole lot to complain about. I think it's great, and uh, 
you know, if you're buying a watch for a, a son or a nephew or, you know, graduating high school or something like that, this is, this is a great thing to get them. You know, it's, it's hassle-free and you're going to give them the love of mechanical watches that you know, will Tommy, eventually bankrupt them and lead them to live under a bridge. <laughs> Tommy, you know, I'll tell you what. When, when you ever decide to go to an Ivy League MBA school so that you can wear a suit and tie every day, and when you graduate from that Ivy League, I will get you this watch. <laughs> to, to remind you your, your humble roots. You know, I, uh, yeah, you, you might have to hold off. I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> I think that ship sailed. I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> all right. So I think that's all we had covered for watches today. I actually want to talk about one other uh, sidebar thing. Um, a couple episodes ago, we did an episode um, called Seiko Killer Kiss Kisse. It was on yes. all the recent uh, Seiko releases, uh, the new Prospects Willards, the, the new 62 Moss updates. Uh, it seems that Seiko is actually making those deliveries right now. So if you you know get on YouTube or uh, get on Hodinkee, uh, you're going to see a lot of reviews of people actually getting these watches. And um, I, I got to say that the, the early reviews of the new 62 Moss watches is very positive. People love it. Uh, James Stacy just has one up on, on, on the version that he got. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been seeing a bunch of reviews on YouTube for the Captain Willard watches, both uh, the Prospects Green and the Prospects Black. Um, and, of course, the very expensive SLA version as well. But um, it seems like these watches are finally getting into people's hands and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been received really well. So um, it's really interesting because the, the SPB, uh, the Seiko Marine Master 200 line, those watches have actually come down in price quite a bit since these new watches came out. Um, uh, I think they were retailing for over a grand uh, wow. initially, right? Uh, 1200, something like that. Yes, um, I right. got a good deal for it under a grand. And now, you know, I, I on eBay, you, you're looking at Marine Master 200s for about 600, 700 bucks. Well, that's a that's a great deal. Yeah, it's a great it's a so my, the sidebar is yes, everyone's excited about the 62 Moss. That that's all great, but now is a great time to get a Marine Master 200. I'm um, more excited about that because yeah. you have a Marine Master 200, and I've I've seen that um, watch. It's it's a very very beautiful watch. Yeah, I've, I've got the uh, zero SPZ, SPB zero uh, six nine, which I think is, is is the blue and black. I'm wearing it right now. It's the blue bezel and the, and the black dial, and uh, I think that's the one to get because the blue really pops, and it's got that whole uh, Omega Seamaster Golden Eyes Pierce Brosnan thing going. Um, yeah. without and it, it's, it's, it's yeah. a watch that punches above its its weight, you know. It's it's absolutely fantastic. I, I I I catch myself looking at this watch all the time, and I've had it for, you know, months if not you know it must be coming on a year now. Um, and I, I love this watch. It is, in my opinion, the only dive watch you really ever need. It it is bulletproof. It looks fantastic. You can wear it with the suit if you wanted to. Um, yeah, I think it punches way above its weight. So, the sidebar to all this is yes, you know, get excited about the sixty-two Moss watches, but. Uh, keep an eye open for those Marine Master 200 watches. I think the prices are coming down now that the kind of uh, euphoria or the first wave is is over, and uh, now is the time to jump in. Um, yeah, I, I got mean, a good deal, we, and you can get a good deal too. If we find some good Marine Master 200s on eBay, we can make it in our future recordings as a watch of buying. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so um, yeah, so 
it, yeah, and if you have gotten a, one of the new 62 MOS iterations, you know, let us know what you think. Um, I'm seeing a lot of excitement there. I'm, I'm starting to, you know, kind of salivate. Uh, there's one with the, with the blue dial, which I think is really attractive. And there's one with a, like a brown, like a, like, I want to say root beer style, which I think is really attractive as well. I, I need to look up the reference numbers, but um, it looks like Seiko really hit it out of the park again, uh, which, which kind of sucks for me because, <laughs> because now I'm starting to think about them. Uh, oh boy! Which, which this, I need this to stop. Is not good. Yeah, it's not good. This obsession is getting to an addiction. It's it's an addiction. Seiko, damn you! Uh, no, but I don't think I'll be coming on. But uh, yeah, you know. So yeah, we'll we'll keep you guys abreast with what's going on. All right, that's that's good to know, Tommy. Um, shall we go to closing notes? Sure. Yeah, and uh, I think we've got one each, right, Sanch? Both yes. Middle Eastern, which is interesting. Which is yeah, interesting. it's. It's it's not like we planned it together. It's it's just two articles that we found that were kind of up our alley and in interest, and we just slapped it on in in our prep. And we, little did we realize it was just two Middle Eastern related articles. There you go. Um, so the first article is an article from uh, War is Boring, um, and it's about the Dassault Aviation Company, uh, the makers of the famous French fighter jets, the Mirage, uh, the Rafale now. Um, and their kind of tie-in with the country of Israel and how um, that partnership between Israel and Dassault Aviation really uh, kind of helped both, both parties. Uh, so in the 50s and 60s, Israel was hunting for fighter jets for its air force, uh, but it kind of had limited options. There was a lot of political reasons for a lot of countries not to sell it weapons. Um, so it, they chose Dassault, which was a, a French aviation company. Um, France was obviously uh, not able to keep up with Britain and the United States during World War II in jet, jet design. So they were kind of seen as a, as a lagging player because they had to kind of start their design after the war. So they were a little bit behind. Um, so after the US arms embargo to Israel, um, uh, they, they chose Dassault with the French company. Uh, and initially the, the contracts were for Oregon's and Mystere II's and then eventually the Mirage 3s. And uh, you know, for anyone that knows, um, Israel successfully used the Mirage and the Mystere uh, to stunning effect in the 1967 Six-Day War, which is probably the most decisive use of uh, fighter jets uh, ever. I mean, Israel, I think, took on three or four air forces and, and won uh, within 48 hours. It was, it was over. They, they swept everyone from the sky. And, the jets that were doing it were made by Dassault, which was probably the best commercial for that company. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. if, if guerrilla marketing, it, you know, you couldn't have a better commercial for your product than having it work flawlessly over and over again and covered in the news nonstop as like the fighter to beat. And it swept everybody. Um, so once, once the dust had settled from that, um, France actually imposed sanctions on Israel and blocked the sale of the next iteration of the Mirage, which is the Mirage 5. Um, so Israel actually went around the sanctions uh, in, in a novel way. So they reached out to Rockwell, which is an American aviation company. Um, and what Rockwell would do is Rockwell would produce the fighters in the US uh, using knockdown assembly kits. So the Mirage 5 fighter jets would be sent in kit form to Rockwell. They would put the fighters together, basically screw everything together, do the tests, and then send them to Israel. Uh, so it's one way of not directly selling to Israel. You would go around the sanctions by going through Rockwell, uh, which is which is really interesting. It's a, it's a really novel yeah, way to get I, I around think, sanctions. It must have been a loophole that they must have found and, and executed because 
I'm pretty sure you cannot get that done in today's uh, environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think people would have wisened up. But the interesting thing is um, uh, Libya actually also reached out to Dassault for the Mirage 5. And, you know, I think they bought more than 100. And uh, a squadron of this was sent to Egypt. And then in the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War that happened uh, six years later from the 1967 war, um, you had the same uh, fighter jets on both sides. So the Egyptians were flying Mirage 5s and the Israelis were flying Mirage 5s. Uh, so it's a quirk of history that both sides ended up with the same fighter jet. Um, but it's an interesting article. You know, it's uh, Dassault obviously uh, is one of the top, uh, you know, aviation companies in the world. Uh, they've, they've stayed on top, even though they're relatively small compared to, you know, Boeing, Lockheed. Um, yeah. And they, they really punch above their weight. It seems like everything they produce has a, you know, a really good reputation, whether it's the Mirage 3, the Mystere 2, before it, um, you know, the Mirage 2000 is one of the best fighter jets out there still. It's almost 40 years old. Uh, the Rafale is, you know, a hit as well. I mean, they're seeing a lot of foreign orders come in. So um, this is, it's, it's a really fascinating company and uh, they make some really famous jets. So this is, this is the partnership that kind of kicked them off into superstardom. Yeah, and you personally are a fan of the Dassault uh, Mirage, right? I, I yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a Dassault fan in general. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the, their famous, you know, the top of the line headline fighters that they produced, the Mystere Two was fantastic. You know, built in the '50s, fighter bomber, pretty much did everything you, you, you could ask it to do. You know, it's a very yeah. dependable workhorse. Then you've got the Mirage Three, obviously, you know, the iconic fighter of the six-day war that you know is a gunfighter beginning to end you got the mirage 2000 that came out in the late 70s early 80s pretty much and you you can do anything you ask it to do it will do it uh you know i know india is still flying mirage 3s qatar still flies mirage uh, mirage 2000s i mean uh and they're still cutting edge they're, they're they're still performing with fighters that are you know 20 30 years younger than them and the rafale now is is absolutely fantastic um you know for for a fourth generation fighter uh, you've got a vehicle that can that can you know kind of hold its own against you know fifth generation fighters, which right. uh, even though it's not yeah. stealth, it, it it brings a lot of other things to the table. So um, yeah, you know, Dassault it's is... a classic. I mean, the Mirage is a classic. Um, what Delta is it? Delta Wing. Delta Wing. Yeah, that was yeah. their that was their big um, design kind of uh, advancement was the use of the Delta Wing, and Saab did that as well. You know, the Saab yes. uh, Vigan. And the Draken as well. And the Gripen still keeps Delta Wing, right? It's a it's with a canard. And and the That's same true. with the same with the Rafale. The Rafale has a canard too. So they they've they've modified it. Um, but yeah, you know, so they, it's interesting, you know, it, it's com- something completely different. Um, they've got their own design philosophy and what they seem to do and the secret to Dassault really was that the fighters were, were very well serviceable. So the Israelis had very good pilots. In the six-day war and you know no doubt about that but the secret to israeli success was really the ground crews because mm-hmm. what, what you could do is if you're outnumbered the israelis could put the same fighter into the air three four times a day so what you automatically did was multiply your air force three or four times assuming right. you didn't have losses right so the assault was very easy to service and they they had it down to i if i memory serves me right it's either eight or 12 minutes. So an Israeli fighter jet can go complete his mission. The guy lands, he jumps out of the fighter. Ground crews immediately refuel. They start rearming. The guy, you know, takes a whiz. He grabs a cup of coffee, finds out the next target. He jumps back in the fighter. He's out. And within 12 minutes, he's, he's back in the air. 
So, you know, that's, that's kind of the secret to success, right? If you're outnumbered, if you can put the same fighter, you know, on, you know, you're hitting Egypt at, you know, 6 a.m., you're hitting Syria at 9 a.m., you're hitting Lebanon at 10 a.m. Basically, <laughs> these guys, yeah, these guys were running like a, a tight-knit, like Southwest Airlines-style uh, frequency of their planes, you know, A to B to C to D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's also something that it, it reminds me of the RAF and the Battle of Britain because they had to do the same thing. They had to do that this is quick, true, yes. They had to do this quick turn. Like you'd have fighters land, immediately refuel, rearm, and you're ready to go again. And that way you, you can make up for your weakness in numbers by having the same fighters show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the Arab opponents in the Six-Day War could not do that. So they could maybe do one sortie per fighter, maybe two if you really stretch it. But the Israelis were doing three or four, and that was the secret. <laughs> Formula One pit stops, so I'm telling you. Pretty much, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's very demanding on the pilot. You know, no pilot... You know, pilots are not, you know, the stresses on the body and the amount of time you're sitting in the cockpit, it's a lot to ask. But, you know, if you're going to make up for numbers, that's the way you make up for numbers. So That's true. I mean... Uh, and Dassault's secret was that they were easy to, to service. They were very dependable aircraft. So when you ask them to do those things, they did it. They didn't break down. They didn't, you know, have mechanical malfunctions. So you didn't have that kind of wear and tear when you really needed them to come through. Right. So, yeah, excellent, excellent company, excellent fighter jets. So speaking of reliability, I'm going <laughs> the cover... other direction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cover something that is completely the opposite, but a fairly interesting uh, article I came across, which I had no idea previously, and it's about General Motors, and it's the time that General Motors sold twelve thousand five hundred terrible Chevy Malibus to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. So, the article I'm referencing from is from the drive.com. Uh, yeah. And it touches upon several other uh, points in, in its reference. So, but I'm, I'm going to go off the drive. And basically, in 1981, GM brokered a deal with Saddam Hussein to sell 25,000 Chevy Malibus to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And the idea was it is so Iraq does not have any automotive industry. They have to import their, their, their vehicles and, and infrastructure in that sense. So they needed taxi cabs and business vehicles and things like that. So it not sure why Saddam Hussein or the Iraqi government at the time came to GM, but I guess there was an infatuation with the American vehicles. Yeah. So they brokered a deal um, and they wanted 25,000 Chevy Malibus. And at the time, the U.S. was sanctioning Iraq um, because of uh, Saddam's uh, bloody way of coming into power and you know, with the, his party, the Ba'ath Party, believed to be supporting terrorism. So they, they could not do it from the U.S. side, you know, GM and, it would, yeah. Yeah, and, and Iraq. So what they did was they went through GM of Canada. And GM of Canada broke the deal. And the Malibus were built in Oshawa, Ontario. Yeah. And they were shipped from the port of Halifax. And GM, knowing that these vehicles were going to be in a completely different environment and climate, they, they did some modifications, too. Um, so they modified the cooling system. They added heavy-duty suspension, um, cloth seats, and, and, and basically to tailor the, the Iraqi desert. Um, however, you know, the first batch of 12,500 cars, when they were received and started to be used, um, typical with the you know, American vehicles back in the late 70s, 80s, reliability was not exactly as strong as 4K. Um, so they started breaking yeah. down, and 
the 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 government was getting really frustrated with this, and and GM tried, you know, sending offered to send mechanics, 100 technicians, and everything to go there and and fix the problem, but then they canceled the order and they did not want the other uh, 12,500 vehicles. So GM was stuck in a, in a bind here. Like, what are we going to do? So what they actually did was they actually sold it to the public. And the, the funny thing is they thought they were going to lose money or the government of Canada had to pay or anything like that. But when they decided to sell these vehicles at a discounted price, they were all completely sold out um, because wow. the people who bought them they they knew that they, they knew how to fix it basically, and they, it was sold for a really good price. They they were while they were not reliable, they were pretty tough. So as long as you knew how to work on them, it was a fine vehicle. So there you go. They they did that and, and GM sold out, and it made a little bit of a cult following in that sense. But there you go, Saddam's Malibu. <laughs> but rumor has it. Um, is that perhaps Saddam Hussein canceled the order in, in order to conserve some costs because uh, it was facing you know battles on the, on the war front and those those costs were skyrocketing so it sounded like they wanted to cut costs yeah that's the uh, I guess in 1981 82 I mean that's the Iran Iran Iraq right, war exactly. so things were probably uh, going pretty south for Iraq by then so interesting wow okay that's that's a little unknown story. yeah so I mean the deal was rumored to be in today's dollars about 200 million dollars had it been completely done but um, yeah GM took a positive note and and they are sold out so they were happy there you go everyone's yeah. happy <laughs> well, except yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. the other 12,500 Malibus they should have just gone Toyota or something yeah, I, I, I'm, is this before the Toyota war? I guess that's that was later, right? When Libya and Chad, that was 86. You know about the Hilux war, right? The Toyota. I think so, yes. I mean, it was also recent, uh, like when when you had, you know, other groups uh, in, in, you know, driving in brand new Hiluxes. Uh, yeah, they were yeah. ISIS, yeah. When ISIS, like, take, took over northern Iraq, they were in brand yeah. new Yeah, and, and Toyota but was questioned the, and brought to, I think, the Senate to, to, to be... Yes, like, why are so many of your products in terrorist hands? <laughs> if I was Toyota, oh, they're like, dependable. I look back 30 years, our product has been phenomenal. In the, yeah, yeah, in yeah. The, so the, the, the Toyota war is the war between Libya and Chad, the one that's in quotes, the Toyota right. war. And that's... That was when both sides were using these trucks. They were, I mean, they were modifying them to call them technicals, and they were just putting guns on the back of Hiluxes yeah. and shooting at each other. So, uh, but yeah, very dependable vehicles. So, goes to show you. But uh, interesting article um, about the GM and Saddam Hussein. Yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll put that on the notes. All right, Sam. So, streaming gold. Sure. All right. So, for streaming gold, uh, have you seen Office Space? Sam? I have. It's been a while, but I have. Okay, so, so you know the plot of Office Space, the, the scam in Office Space, right? Where you take a fraction of a penny and you deposit it in an account. And, and he asks, hey, I've heard this plan before. He's like, yeah, it's the plot for Superman 3, right? So this is kind of similar. Uh, <laughs> this is about uh, a, doc a documentary on Netflix called Fear City. And it's about the, the massive RICO case that took down all the five families. Um, in the 1980s, the five mafia families in New York oh, City in okay. one big yes, case. Yes. And if you if you remember right, that's the plot to The Dark yep. Knight, basically a RICO case against everybody. 
but yeah, this is uh, this is a true story. This is about the FBI's um, organized crime uh, detail. They had a uh, they had a specific uh, team for each of the five families: uh, the Gambinos, uh, the Bananos, the Tommies, the other three. The Tommies. Um, so yeah, each team uh, had to work on each family to figure out a way to uh, get a RICO case, which is a, a racketeering case. It was a new law that, that had come out just to deal with the mafia. Um, it was on the books, but they didn't know re- really how to use it. So this is when electronic surveillance came into play. This is when, um, you know, basically the FBI pulled out all stops to kind of, uh, you know, smash the mafia once and for all. It's a fantastic documentary. It's three parts. Um, you don't realize the scope of what the mafia was controlling until you watch it. Um, there's, I think part three is about the concrete mafia, where basically they controlled the 10 companies that poured concrete in the city of Manhattan, in, in the borough of Manhattan. And in the 1980s was a huge skyscraper boom. So these guys are making, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah on all these contracts because they were literally controlling all the concrete that was getting poured in New York city. And it was all, it was all under mob contracts. So if anyone else came to compete on those contracts, they either ended up dead or they had their legs broken. So, um, you know, huge. And, and nobody knew about this until the wiretaps started mentioning something about a, about a concrete uh, a group or a concrete team or, you know, it was bizarre. They'd never heard of this. And, they started asking around. It's like, oh, this is actually a, a multi-million-dollar, you know, uh, scheme that no one's no one's aware of, and these guys are making a ridiculous amount of money on it. Um, so it, it's it's crazy. Um, it's called Fear City. It's excellent. It has interviews with a lot of the famous people that were involved, uh, including Rudy Giuliani, who was the district attorney back then, uh, before he became mm. mayor. He 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 was the guy overseeing the prosecution. Uh, for the uh, Southern District of New Interesting. York, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. So it's it's excellent. So it's very quick. It's only three parts. But uh, I was watching it, and they said, "Oh yeah, Rico against the five families." I'm like, "Oh, that sounds a lot like uh, Dark." Yeah, Night. you're right. So, uh, is this a plot. bio? It's a Rico case. How should I put it? Is it a like a docu docu drama style, or is this like um, a, like more of a documentary itself? Um, it's not acted. Okay. Uh, so it's interviews with the people that were there, the agents, the, the attorneys, and actually some of the mobsters too. Um, there are parts of it that are dramatized to show you how they did some of the technical things. Like they show you how um, there's one scene where one of the mobsters has a Jaguar and they have to install um, a bug in his car and they have to practice doing it, putting it behind the AC vent. So they had technical guys from the FBI buy the exact same Jaguar. They took it to one of their labs and they were practicing taking apart the AC vent, putting this in, connecting it to the car battery and then putting down the, putting, you know, closing the vent and getting out of the car. And they had it down to like, you know, 30 seconds or 45 seconds to do that. It's like insane. I mean, they didn't have so to do any would... of the tracking bug because that Jaguar would probably be broken out, you know, on the side of the street every like five miles. That's <laughs> true. They, well, that, this is, I mean, not a spoiler, but the interesting thing is that actually happened. <laughs> so what happened was that the, the car was parked and uh, the, the bug actually uses the car battery and drained the car battery. And the guy had a slew of complaints with the, with the car, the Jaguar. So they were going to send it to the car dealership. And the problem is the car dealership, once they open up the car, is going to notice that something else is hooked up to the car battery. And let him know that hey, you're bugged. Or you, what is this thing? 
So the FBI, when when he had to have the car towed, when you know when the car died, they had to intercept the car, the tow truck, and disconnect this bug while they weren't looking, while the the tow truck guy wasn't looking, and they get the bug out of there so he can do the repairs on the car. And then when the car was fixed, they had to rebug the car to make sure it's wired up correctly again. <laughs> so it's insane without anybody knowing. Okay. And they did this over and over again uh, to each of the five families. They had a different way of getting into their car, you know, getting into their, getting into the house or getting into the car. You know, uh, you know, one guy had cable issues. So they sent a cable repair guy and he set up a bug in the cable. Box. You know what they should have done? If, said, I, if I was the mafia, I would have not had Jaguars. I would have had Toyota Tacomas. Um, you can get Hiluxes yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in the U.S., um, but the Tacomas are the closest thing. So, and, and you could never, you get, never in get in trouble. There you go. But you know, you, you got to have some swagger, bro. <laughs> All right, then, then to go German, you know, make it expensive. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's not a bad idea. Actually, <laughs> go get that Porsche. Okay. That's right. And and the AC vent thing, um, that's from Donnie Brasco. You know, I, I think he's he's paranoid about um, Al Pacino in one scene is paranoid about a mic behind the AC vent, and I think that's a reference to this actual gotcha. where they bugged the Jaguar. No, so, it sounds like a uh, cool, it, cool, it yeah, was great. cool documentary. Definitely check it out. It's on Netflix. Uh, I'll put a link to uh, the trailer so you can uh, take any look. any watch spottings in in this. So funny you mention. Um, there is a clear shot of a Breitling stopwatch in the scene when they're practicing putting the bug in the Jaguar and they're timing how quickly they can do it. Um, there's a clear shot of a Breitling stopwatch. Um, I, I, I will, I'll put up, uh, is it a Hamilton? I'm not sure actually, I have to check my notes, but I, I have a shot of it. I'll post it on the Instagram. Um, it, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty straight on. Uh, I didn't see a lot of other watches. I, I think I saw a Rolex on one of the mobsters, um, but I, I can't. Confirm. Yeah, but that would be standard issue, right? You know, gold Rolex. Gold Rolex. Rolex. I mean, hey, you know, uh, was it Tony Soprano had a. a yeah, date that's just, standard right? issue. So, gold Rolex date just. Yeah, yeah. So a sign up. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Whether you're a you're a you're a doctor or a mobster. Yeah, I mean. Uh, or or you know circumventing the 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 globe. I mean, Frank uh, was a. Francis Chichester, Chichester. Uh, he, when he uh, circumnavigated the globe by sailboat, um, he had a date just on, if I remember right. right. Or if you're, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think his name was General Norman from the Gulf War. They called him Norman Schwarzkopf. Sorry? Norman Schwarzkopf. Yes. Storman Norman. Yeah, I think he had a date just in one hand and a Seiko STX, I think, on the other hand, or something. That's right. And you know why, right? Different time zones. Right. So he had to, when he had to consult back to the Pentagon, he had one on DC time and one on Saudi time because he was in the Middle East for Desert Shield and Desert War. So uh, Desert Storm. So he had to keep two time, time zones. So he just had two. Should sure have got a GMT master too. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of like that he had two. Yeah. It's, it, it brings character or a unique, yeah. you know, we, we're talking about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a two-tone Rolex. I'm not sure what it was. I, I thought it was a Datejust, um, but uh, irrespective. Some are saying it's a Rolex president, but I, I, I'm not sure, actually, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, very... He's famous for the double, double Rolex. I think the president is basically... Actually, it's a Date-Date, maybe? I think I'm not maybe sure. a Date-Date. There's date, a lot of conjecture. Fluted bezel, you know, that... Yes. 
Yes, and the middle the middle links are gold. It's a two tone. Right. So, all right, cool. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Yeah. So this this goes out to the Porsche enthusiasts, the entry level watch enthusiasts, blue collar blue jeans, and uh, yeah, those who are interested in buying an eighty one Malibu, learn how to fix it. <laughs> Get one of the Saddam limited edition Malibus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for joining us for another episode, uh, another short uh, from the Land Jam podcast. Uh, you know, feel free to uh, subscribe to us and uh, give us a like and, uh, you know, spread the word. And if you have iTunes, please, uh, we really appreciate it if you could review and rate us. It really helps the podcast and uh, gets more people uh, in through the door. All right. Until next time. Thank you.